0: Welcome to the first episode of the We Women podcast. I'm Kelly Turtle. And I'm Yona Monaghan. This podcast has been created to accompany a participation project um, facilitated by Women's Platform in Northern Ireland, the project took place in 2021 and 2022 involved eight women's groups developing a shared vision for Northern Ireland as a society that works for women. It was funded by the Irish Department for Foreign Affairs and you can read the full project report on the Women's Platform website womensplatform.org. In this first of two episodes, you'll hear myself and Yona discussing the background to the project, the challenges of getting the voices of ordinary women heard in the corridors of power and how we tried out some new approaches in this recent participation work. So, Yona, you are the coordinator of Women's Platform. Would you like to give us a bit of background to where this project came from and the kind of work that you've been doing for years?
1: Yeah, Women's Platform, the simplest way of explaining Who we are is we act as the link between the women's sector in Northern Ireland and the European and international level. So a lot of of our work is around international human rights standards, following what's happening globally, trying to share women's views from Northern Ireland when the UK is assessed on human rights standards and so on. And then we also try and build capacity in Northern Ireland for women, And girls to use them and a part of that is UN Security Council resolution 1325 which is about women peace and security and focuses on making sure that women have a voice and an equal role at all stages of peace building processes and what this that was where what this project links to there was a formal Westminster inquiry done a number of years ago on to what extent are the principles of 1325 realist in Northern Ireland, um, which showed that there still was quite a lot of work to do. What we wanted to do in this was mark the 20th anniversary of 1325 in 2020. Because that was in the middle of COVID, this work had to wait until we could meet with people in person because this is not work that can be online. And actually waiting a while, helped us develop our thinking around it but really it was about not so much about collecting more evidence but giving women a chance of talking about their lives and what Northern Ireland would look like if it actually worked for women and certainly from from my perspective it was quite important we mentioned with peace building we mentioned 1325 but we didn't ask what would a peaceful Northern Ireland look like because I think we all come with certain ideas of what that is but actually pieces about everything and that's how we look at 1325, you know, if women don't have equal pay at work, access to childcare, equal representation, then it's not a sustainable, peaceful society.
0: Yeah, it's something I remember hearing um, Claire Bailey say a long time ago when she first got into elected politics that idea of security, as well as peace, that there's so many different types of security. There's economic security, there's safety in your own home, there's, um, you know, and often I suppose our political discourse here just focuses on a very politicised idea of security that's tied to a lot of legacy issues, and women have maybe quite different experiences of that because of the way our rules have transpired in our families and in our communities. When you say there about Women's Platform being the link to those international mechanisms, I feel the need to just highlight how much work goes into that because I've witnessed and I've been part of the work that your organisation does, writing those reports for United Nations bodies like the UN CEDAW Committee that oversees the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Love those big names. And I've gone to Geneva and I've seen all the work that you've done, you know, putting that report together for the civil society organisations, and it is massive. So, yeah, I think it's it's really important to have that link We're going to hear now from Louise Kennedy, who is a former chair of Women's Platform. We asked her to just speak a little bit about her experience of engaging with those international mechanisms and why she thinks it's so important to get the voices of ordinary women heard at that kind of highest level of power.
2: At the end of the day, the UN mechanisms are about, for women, it's about putting food on the table. It's about having your children looked after. It's about having a job where you get paid equally to to men. And it's about being safe and free from, from violence and abuse. And so it's about all those things that every woman in Northern Ireland and across the world deals with, thinks about. It's bread and butter issues, but it's just couched in these very highfalutin human rights terms. I've been to Geneva to the CEDAW um, examinations of the UK government. And my experience of it is that this is a place where things can get done. For example, it's great when you hear the words you have said to CEDAW committee members that maybe a woman from East Belfast has said to you, and then that's being quoted back at an international stage. And the government then has to say, well, why are we not doing as well as we can? Why are we not fulfilling our obligations to, to protect women? Um, so that can be really powerful. And I think progress does get made. I think when you look at, um, for example, abortion in Northern Ireland, it was a combination of a lot of things. But CEDAW did play a really important part in it. So you had the work being done on the ground by activists and then you had the work being done with the CEDAW committee. And all of those things came together to actually make a really, really important, huge shift for the reproductive rights of women in Northern Ireland. We're not there yet, but it was something that I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime and to actually see those mechanisms work and deliver for women was really something and to be part of it was was even greater but yet it can take a long time for these things to happen so I think there is a frustration there I think there's also the challenge of making it relevant to women um, and also making it accessible to women and that's a job I think that the women sector we have to look inward Because everyone can be guilty of of gatekeeping or just not thinking about how do we best capture the voices and views of all women and be truly representative. In the last CEDAW hearing, for example, there was an issue whereby the UK group of NGOs, there were groups of migrant women, sex workers and other groups who felt that they had been marginalized and hadn't been included in those conversations. So a lot of work had to be done to sort of find, figure out how we did incorporate those voices in. And I think that's an ongoing issue and it's an ongoing challenge. But it's something I think that I know that Women's Platform have been working really hard to improve on from the Northern Irish perspective. And also, of course, across the four nations, that got, I think more work does have to be done there. Because at the end of the day, if the most marginalised and most vulnerable of women aren't getting their voices heard, then we're all being, we're all being failed. We need to bring everyone along with us and we, you know, it's so important not to fall into that trap of middle-class white feminism, which I think can happen a lot when it comes to these UN procedures.
0: It's great to hear Louise touch there on this issue of how we do it better, um, how we get those marginalised voices into the room, how we make this whole process more accessible to women and that was really key to us as we were designing this project. So, Yona, you'd asked me to come in and help out with facilitation I suppose between us and throughout the women's sector we've all got years and years of experience of facilitating these type of spaces to allow women to share their views tell their stories but we're always trying to learn how we can do it more effectively what do you think has been some of the things you've learned over the years you know that work well or that we need to be doing differently
1: I think the most important thing is to create environments where women feel that they are genuinely being heard because it would be very easy to do some sort of extractive practice: come in, gather up lots of evidence, and go away. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's not appropriate. It's about building women's capacity as you're going along and trying to support women to, you know, how can women be heard? And there's a, an awful lot more we can do. It's also about trying to engage women as diversely as possible, as Louise talked about. In her sections of marginalized voices, that's something I think we all continuously need to remember that we need to make an effort to find ways of engaging different groups of women in different terms. It's not a one size fits all. It sounds like um, what you're talking
0: about is a methodology where you need to be thinking about the end product before you start to plan your first engagement, because like you said, that issue of impact is so important and women knowing that this is going to go somewhere. So unless we know exactly where it's going to go and how they're going to get that chance to have that ongoing conversation with decision makers um, and to actually see actions come from what they tell us, then we're, we're going in unprepared if we haven't already established what that's going to look like. When I was working at WRDA, Women's Resource and Development Agency, I produced a guide called Women at the Heart of Public Consultation that had two parallel sets of advice and recommendations. One for public sector organisations that want to ask women for their views and one for women sector organisations. And it was about enhancing best practice from both sides. And the fundamental central kind of theme for me was storytelling. Because especially when you're dealing with people who've been marginalised, who haven't ever engaged with politics or policy making before and you ask them for their views or opinions that can often feel very daunting and people can feel like they might not have the educational background or knowledge to give their view but if you ask someone to tell their story nobody can argue with that we are all experts in our own lives Um, and so we've tried to use storytelling in this project as a way of ensuring women feel confident and comfortable to talk with um, expertise about the things they've experienced we're going to hear now from Helen Smith, who's the training manager at Greenway Women's Centre. And we asked Helen to talk about what she thinks, from a grassroots women's organisation perspective, works best whenever organisations come in to ask women for their views.
3: I think it's important for women to use the voice to be able to express what it is that they're actually feeling about a situation in a safe, controlled environment. It's always very important to me where that's concerned because sometimes. Um, like they might speak to a reporter for some reason or other but then the, the, obviously when it's being publicised on TV it's taken out of context. So um, we're it's a focus group consultation so they're getting the use of voice in its entirety. Women's centres across Northern Ireland we give the people the opportunity to speak out whereas in, they hear stuff on TV but they, they can't put their point across and they feel left out and neglected sometimes it's hard for some women to say what they want to say Um, some topics can be harder than others some don't want to speak about it the before the one-to-one sessions, which I try to accommodate um, if at all possible. It all depends on what the consultation is about or if the person has time to do the one-to-ones yeah. as well. Um, that can be hard and tricky too, but um, when women do focus groups, consultations, sometimes you don't actually see the end results, and that can be quite frustrating sometimes with the women because they, w- they come back to me and say, well, what actually happened, Helen? <laughs> what did my words make a difference you know did I say the right thing you know it's things like that but yes me personally I would like to see more follow-ups not just the one consultation you know let the the, the woman or the man doing the, the questions to come back and say well this is the results of what you've said.
0: Well that was Helen Smith from Greenway and it's Always important for us to hear those challenges from the grassroots sector. As you said, Yona, we can sometimes be too uh, academic about these things and we have to keep bringing it back to the day-to-day lives. Um, So we've talked a bit about this idea of capacity building and that capacity building was an important element to this work. And you mentioned there about the diversity that we need to be striving for. Um, As we approached this project, that was the biggest challenge that we were trying to build in. And I was very mindful that in the feminist movement, the idea of intersectionality has really, over the last, you know, at least a decade now, taken root as a really important focus, a guiding principle for feminist thought and theory, but also feminist practice. And for anybody, I suppose, listening who isn't familiar with the concept of intersectionality, It's a theory that was developed by a black feminist in the United States, Kimberly Crenshaw, that looks at the intersecting oppressions that um, women face when it comes to racism, white supremacy, economic injustice, patriarchy and gender justice. And it puts all of those oppressions together and demands that as feminists we attend to all of those. And it's uh, an attempt to try and recover feminism from the dominance of white, middle-class, well-educated women, which is something that Louise touched on at the end of her piece. So we wanted to capacity build around that because it's something that I think at the grassroots could be hugely meaningful to women who are experiencing all those intersecting oppressions and yet it's a theory that hasn't really been put into their hands in the same way that a lot of these human rights tools haven't been made accessible. You know What did you
1: feel about how we, we started to work with that issue? I thought that, that it was really important. As we mentioned before, it's about whenever you go and get with women, it's about giving something back, building their capacity to use those tools. And I think it was quite clear, you know, intersectionality as a concept was new to a lot of women. But once we started talking about it, they were clear about what it means. But it did show in the discussion and in the findings that it was useful for, to have the space to talk about what it actually means as a concept, I think it, it enhanced women's understanding. and There was feedback to that effect. Oh, now I finally understand what it means, and that idea that it's not about anyone's oppression being more important. It's about we don't lead separate lives. We the, that's all intermingled. And I, I do think that that was a useful doing because the end product, you know, took a different perspective on what what exactly works for for them and for other women but for me the main part is that I hope that women feel that they were given something and they have something they didn't have before and can start building on that yeah and it's it's where the name we women came from because
0: we wanted to get this sense of building solidarity Um, because I remember one of the groups in particular you know the that you mentioned there they were quite resistant to the idea of intersectionality because they'd heard it explained before in a way that made it feel very divisive as you said like setting up different oppressions as being more important than others and our intention was to go in there and talk about how this builds solidarity and means that you may find yourself standing on a front line with someone on an issue that does not personally affect you but it affects that woman beside you so you will stand together and and hopefully that was, yeah, what we left the groups with. Um, how we did it was through using story. Um, again, storytelling and transformative storytelling be, being a really important tool. So we had asked a great artist and illustrator um, called Shannon Patterson to create visual characters to go with the, this set of case studies. So we were bringing all of those diverse voices into the room the this the stories that we created were done in collaboration with women who have experienced those different oppressions. So there's one of the case studies focused on um, a disabled woman. There was uh, there were trans woman represented, um, a young traveller woman, an asylum seeker woman, and, and and a real amalgamation of experiences. We wanted to make those stories feel real and not single issue stories. So we merged different um, experiences of inequality. And as I said, Shannon illustrated those so that when we took them out to the groups, we didn't just have these words on a page, but we also had an image that women could look at and relate to. And I think that was really important because in previous work, sometimes we do this box ticking exercise where we go, we need to speak to a BAME group. We need to speak to an LGBT group and... It was interesting to see can we actually bring all those stories into every room so we're not breaking people up into their silos, so we're genuinely building solidarity and that we can have an impact maybe on those spaces as well, so building the capacity of the groups to be more inclusive, to think about how they can adapt to increase their own diversity. We're going to hear now from Alexa Boer, who is a previous director of Transgender NI and one of the people that we consulted in the development of these case studies and Alexa I just asked Alexa to talk a little bit about why it's really particularly important for marginalized women to not just see themselves reflected in the policy agenda but to also experience that solidarity and that inclusion within the physical women's sector and the groups and the spaces that women have access to.
4: The women's sector in Northern Ireland has generally actually been quite good at doing the intersectionality thing, um, you know, getting different voices in the room, engaging with kind of marginalized communities in ways that, you know, often sectors in other areas of the UK, such as England, don't necessarily do a- a- as well. Um, you know, Northern Ireland has, you know, I mean, in particular, from my own perspective, in those kind of policy making and, and policy development circles, uh, the women's sector has been just fabulous um, for camaraderie and inclusion and, and all of this. It's only right because only when you get trans women like myself and migrant women and disabled women, etc into those kind of spaces and those kind of rooms, can you actually develop a policy that is materially addressing their needs. But it also kind of needs to extend beyond the... The kind of policy making circles and into the service delivery circles as well, which I I think there there can often be a disconnect there with, with kind of people engaged in the in the kind of airy fairy um policy development and, and, and almost grating against women on the ground who are working in these services, who are delivering these services, who are like, oh well, what about this, this, and this? Um, or who haven't maybe thought about intersectionality as much. As those who are having to steep themselves in it because they're writing policy all the time, so I think that it's really important that we have that kind of trickle down effect, uh, for lack of a better term, where you can kind of the 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 ethos and the the kind of methods as well of, of intersectional practice that we we often use in policy making should be supplanted into those services as well. I think that accessing spaces and 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 making actual kind of communities feel safer for again in particular I'm thinking trans women but also migrant and refugee women and disabled women and 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 traveller women etc. Making spaces accessible for them is actually I think where you make the most difference because we can sit shouting at the government to make change for. Years, But what we materially can do right now is make our spaces and our services and our organisations more accessible to all different types of women. That is something that the sector in Northern Ireland is doing well at. But I think that they can always do more. Intersectionality is not a one one and done thing. It is a constantly evolving and constantly changing piece of work.
1: I think taking the intersectional approach in particular definitely reflected in the end product which was about you know what works for women in Northern Ireland on the whole and uh, the discussions we then had about what women need it became a higher level and I think we will talk more about that in the second episode but what really comes strongly across is that there are so many themes that are shared for women regardless of their backgrounds and that's something I think really emerged on the back of having the time and the space to do this kind of storytelling. That's great to hear and we will talk more about the end
0: product in the next episode. I think in terms of the process I really felt that this was a much more challenging way to do the facilitation. I learned a lot from it. It was really important to bring all those diverse voices into the room we're all learning together as we go through these processes and I think we can enhance the quality of of the work that we produce and enhance the experience for women who we invite into that um, space to participate. So thank you, Yona, for a great conversation about where this project came from and how we did it. And next time we're going to delve into the findings. So we're going to talk about what the women discussed, what themes have come out of it and Also reflect on the things that you can't capture in themes or you can't get on a page. There's rich conversations. What stood out for us as facilitators and where we think there's really important insights here for shaping the policy agenda. So... I want to thank the other speakers who participated in today's episode, Louise Kennedy, Helen Smith and Alexa Moore, and invite you to hop over to episode two for the second part of our conversation. And of course, you can read the full report on the website, womensplatform.org.